thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. This week, a fond farewell to the spacecraft Cassini, the science of hurricanes, and how scientists can now see what's in the atmosphere of a remote planet hundreds of light years away. Plus, later in the programme, we're taking a trip down memory lane. One girl was saying how she had a rock in her hand and she was attacking a love rival and she'd she'd gone at her and thrown this really big rock. And so she was reenacting in front of me this crime that never happened. We'll hear how scientists can implant false memories, wipe memory away and about the link between head injuries and Alzheimer's. Hello, I'm Chris Smith and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First up, let's take a look at what's been making science headlines around the world and bacteria could be conspiring with cancer to block the action of chemotherapy drugs. According to scientists in Israel, bacteria can get inside tumours and even inside cancer cells themselves and then use their own metabolic machinery to protect the tumour cells by breaking down anti-cancer treatments like the drug gemcitabine. Ravid Straussman. They can either come probably from the bloodstream into the tumours Or, because we were exploring pancreatic cancers, they might come from the gastrointestinal tract. We can see them in different uh, methods, we can characterize them, we know which bacteria they are, and we know it can really affect the sensitivity of these cancer cells to chemotherapy. How do you know that it is the bacteria that are doing that, and it's not just that the bacteria are there like a bystander? Because you've got abnormal cancer tissue, the bacteria have settled there, and they've got nothing to do with the resistance to the drugs. We know in the laboratory that when we take cancer cells and we put chemotherapy on them, it's really easy uh, to kill them. But when we add specific types of bacteria into this culture of cancer cells, the cancer cells become completely resistant to chemotherapy. We found that bacteria can inactivate the drug by cutting it. We also can show that if you have mice models with a cancer and bacteria, the cancer of the mice is becoming completely resistant to chemotherapy. But if you treat these mice with antibiotics, then you can resensitize these tumors to uh, chemotherapy. Now, we do see the same bacteria in human patients. We know that these bacteria have the genes they need to degrade the drug, but it's hard to know what would be the effect of eradicating these bacteria from human tumors. So your hypothesis is that people who don't respond very well to their chemotherapy or develop drug resistance, at least a subset of those patients may well have tumours in which they've got bacteria in the tumour and the bacteria are breaking down the chemotherapy drugs so that they don't kill the cancer cells. Right, so we profiled 113 pancreatic cancer patients and we found bacteria in the majority of them. 
bacteria were found between the cells and even inside cancer cells. And we know, as I said before, that these bacteria have the right capacity to degrade gemcitabine. From here, one can only postulate that if you have a bacteria inside the cancer cell and it can degrade gemcitabine, so probably it's going to protect the cancer cells from chemotherapy. But someone would need to do clinical trials in order to validate how important this mechanism really is. What specifically were the bugs that you found? We found many bugs, many types of bacteria. Some of these you know, like E. coli or Salmonella. The one thing in common to all of these bacteria was that they all have a specific enzyme called CDD. It stands for cytidine deaminase and can come in a short or a long isoform. We found that only bacteria with a long isoform of CDD can degrade the drug gemcitabine. And when we looked into these patients, into the tumors of these patients, we, we found that many of them have bacteria with long CDD isoform. So that means that particular flavor is capable of breaking down the drug. It's in those bacteria, right. so it sort of puts the weapon, the smoking gun, at the scene of the crime and in the hand of the bacterial criminal, doesn't it? Yes. We also isolated these bacteria and were able to demonstrate that bacteria isolated from pancreatic cancer patients from the pancreatic tumors can degrade gemcitabine that we add in the lab to these cells. What about doing the experiment where you take tumors and add bacteria to those tumors that have this drug-degrading ability? Can you then confer on the cancer resistance to the chemotherapy by adding only the bacteria? Right. So we did a few of these experiments. We took, as you said, mice models of cancer And if we put inside bacteria with a long CDD isoform, these mice models of cancer become completely resistant to therapy. And then if we treat them with antibiotics together with gemcitabine, then we can make these tumors go away. Another type of experiment that we did, we took mice models of cancer, put bacteria inside them, but we changed one very small piece in the DNA of these bacteria, making CDD-positive bacteria into CDD-negative bacteria. Then all of a sudden, these mice are responding to chemotherapy. It's amazing and encouraging news, isn't it? Maybe we can treat cancers in future with antibiotics as well as anti-cancer drugs. That was Ravid Straussman, and he's based at the Weissman Institute in Israel. The study he was talking about has just come out in the journal Science. Now, Friday the 15th of September marked the end of a 20-year-long journey for the spacecraft Cassini because it was purposefully crashed into the atmosphere of Saturn. It had taken about seven years to reach Saturn from the Earth, And since then, and on arrival, it's been exploring the system of rings and the moons around Saturn for the last 13 years. And it's been transmitting what it's discovered back to scientists at NASA and at the European Space Agency. John Zarnecki, who is now the president of the Royal Astronomical Society in the UK, but also helped to build the Huygens probe, which was part of the Cassini spacecraft, is with us to help us to celebrate the end of Cassini and reflect a bit on what it discovered. So, John, why did they crash it? We got to the point where it was literally running out of fuel 
and it wouldn't have been possible to control it for any longer, you know, to do the fine pointing and attitude manoeuvres that you need to do detailed scientific measurements. So this was a planned destruction, if you like, and the safest way to do it from a scientific perspective by burning it up in Saturn's atmosphere. Some commentators have pointed out that by doing this in advance of it running out of fuel and manoeuvring it onto this trajectory, which which began back in April of this year, didn't it? It enabled scientists to gain insights into bits of Saturn that would have endangered the, and imperiled the probe possibly previously. Yes, that's absolutely right. So for the last few months, the, the orbit, which has been changing in, in such a way that it would eventually end up crashing into the cloud tops of Saturn, but the orbit took it diving between the innermost ring of Saturn and, and the top of Saturn's atmosphere. So that's something pretty risky that you'd never have done during the regular part of the mission. But on this final dive, Cassini came closer in than anybody or any craft had ever been before. And so it was able to collect some unique data. Normally the data is stored on board and then slowly beamed back to the Earth. But of course, because of the destruction of the craft, the data had to be sent back literally as it was collected. And has that data arrived? Do we have it? Yes, yes. Scientists have it. They're, they're poring over it at the moment. There was a, a press conference uh, just a few hours, I think, after the demise of Cassini from the final images taken, which I think were taken the day before the final demise. They were able to work out exactly where Cassini plunged into Saturn and they're pouring over the data. I, th I think what's going to be particularly interesting is the magnetometer data. So this is the magnetic field. It's one of the few ways, maybe the only way, that you can say something directly about what's going on at the very centre of Saturn because the magnetic field is generated in the core Otherwise, of course, we've got really no way of getting to the centre of Saturn. One of the other interesting things about Saturn that no one can explain, perhaps this will shed new light, is the whole question that the top half of Saturn seems to rotate at a slightly different speed than the bottom half, doesn't it? And we don't really understand how it can be doing that. That's right. I think the, the rotation is one of the mysteries. And, of course... It's been collecting data ever since Cassini arrived, which was back in 2004. And although there have been something like 4,000 scientific papers published already from Cassini and the Huygens probe, the truth is that this data is going to be analysed for, you know, probably the next 20 years. It's also the biggest geezer in the solar system, isn't it? Well, or at least not Saturn, but one of its moons, Enceladus. And that was another big Cassini first to discover it, it, that enormous plume coming out of this tiny moon. It was. And of course, that was one of the big surprises. Enceladus is a relatively small 500 kilometre size moon. And uh, we knew a little bit about it, but we didn't expect anything dramatic to come from it. But of course, it was found that it is in fact spewing out not just water, but there seem to be organic molecules as well. So this means that this is a rather active place. It's not beyond the bounds of possibility that within Enceladus, where there's almost certainly a subsurface ocean below, or at least pockets, large pockets of, of water below the icy surface, there could even be the simplest form of life uh, living quite happily there. 
I'm going to share with people, John, because our, our relationship goes back about 20 years because you came to Cambridge University when I was a medical student at Cambridge University and you gave a talk because you had helped as one of the team members to design this Huygens lander that you said at this talk, I'm going to send this thing aboard Cassini and it's going to travel through space for seven years. And I thought that was mind-boggling for a start. And I'm going to send this thing to land on the surface of Titan, which is Saturn's largest moon. Now, I didn't touch base with you again until seven years later, and that's when Cassini arrived in the Saturnian system. And then you sent me a text message on a phone, which has long since died, but I still have the phone, I still have the message, and it says, Pyro's blown, probe away. And that was you deploying the Huygens lander down onto the surface of Titan. What what was that like, um, seeing all that 20 years plus of, of work to get that out there? Gosh, well, uh, yes, you brought back quite some memories for me. We had seven years of developing the instruments and the probe, launched in 97 and then arrived at uh, the Saturnian system 2004. And it was Christmas Day when Cassini released Huygens. So that, that was the message which, you know, at least told us that Huygens had been let loose and was it was on a collision course with Titan. You know, I'm not a poet, I'm a mere scientist, so I I find it hard to find the words to describe the emotions that you feel, because when you work on a space project like this, it really almost totally takes you over. You belong to it body and soul, and and so it's, it's very emotional. It's an amazing achievement. John, thank you very much for sharing it with us. It's a pleasure to have you back on the programme. Professor John Zarnecki from the Royal Astronomical Society and co-designer and builder of the Huygens lander as part of the Cassini mission. If if the data is freely available and not behind a paywall or not kept anonymous, there's going to be a lot more benefit to society. In this month's Naked Genetics, would you donate your genome to research? We meet a man who has and find out why. Plus, we get our hands dirty searching for new antibiotics, look at the ethics of human gene editing, and our gene of the month is getting ahead. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and still to come, why hurricanes are hitting hard and we cast our minds back to memories. So, now we've covered Saturn, we'd better get back down to Earth. What happens when the science and technology of space comes down to Earth? Welcome to Down to Earth from the Naked Scientists, the mini-series that explores the spin-offs from space technology that are being used in life on Earth. I'm Dr Stuart Higgins. When David Saucier, a NASA engineer, suffered from a heart attack in 1983, little did he know that it would spark a collaboration between the space agency and doctors. After receiving a heart transplant, Saucier ended up chatting to his heart surgeon, Dr. Michael DeBakey, and realised there was a need for effective heart pumps. The pumps, known as ventricular assist devices, help support a patient with heart failure while they're waiting for a transplant. However, the existing ones were large, cumbersome and prone to clogging. Soon, NASA engineers were meeting the medical team at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, to help design a new kind of pump. The engineers were experienced in designing high-performance fuel pumps for the space shuttle. These pumps are used to maintain the fuel injection rates into the rocket engine to ensure consistent levels of thrust. Together with clinicians, they developed a miniature, high-performance pump that could be fitted inside patients. 
the pump helps minimise the strain on the heart while the patient is waiting for a transplant. And the team hopes in the future that the pump itself might ultimately be used as an alternative to transplants. One of the problems with existing pump designs was that they let regions of slow-moving blood accumulate around the pump. This led to coagulation and clotting, causing serious problems in the patient if the clot was suddenly released and got trapped in a blood vessel in another part of the body. In order to overcome this, the engineers simulated the blood flow through the pump using the same techniques and approaches developed for the space program. Their computer model allowed them to develop specially shaped inlets and outlets on the pump that reduced dead regions and hence clotting. These changes also minimised the damage to blood cells caused by friction with the pump surfaces. The heart pumps have now been successfully implanted in hundreds of patients worldwide, with further trials ongoing. Although there is one side effect to having a pump supporting your heart, and that's a lack of detectable pulse. Although according to one journal article, after some initial confusion, nurses treating patients quickly got used to this. So that's how the expertise in modelling fuel pumps for rocket engines has been used to develop a new heart pump for patients suffering with heart failure. That was Down to Earth from the Naked Scientists, and join me again soon to learn about more space technology that's changing lives back on Earth. Thank you, Stuart. And next time on Down to Earth, Stuart explains how solving the challenge of landing space probes safely now keeps your crisps all nice and crunchy and fresh. Late summer is typically hurricane season in the tropics, and in 2017, hurricanes Harvey and Irma have wreaked havoc across the Caribbean and the southern USA. Irma is in fact the largest such storm we've ever seen. So Katie Haler has been looking up the science behind these extreme weather systems. The governor of Florida has said 20 million people so must prepare to leave their gone. homes. The damage is of unprecedented scale. The World Health Organization says 17,000 people the Royal the Fleet region. auxiliary ships delivered six tonnes of aid to Anguilla, which was hit by the full blast earlier in the week. Hurricane force winds have begun to hammer the US territory of Puerto Rico. Hurricane Irma is now one of the most powerful storms on record in the Atlantic Basin. With winds reaching upwards of 180 miles an hour, the storm has decimated homes and caused chaos across the Caribbean and parts of the USA. Here's tropical meteorologist Nick Klingerman from the University of Reading. A hurricane is a very large, organised cluster of uh, thunderstorms, essentially. Um, They can be hundreds, if not thousands, of kilometres across. Uh, They tend to form over very warm uh, tropical oceans where there's lots of uh, heat and moisture available to to feed into these thunderstorms. So hurricanes are always associated with an eye uh, in the middle uh, and then these tightly uh, rotating spiral arms of thunderstorms uh, that, that come out around them. Hurricanes need a few ingredients uh, to be able to form. First of all, they need very warm uh, ocean surface temperatures so that they can extract a lot of heat and energy uh, from the ocean. Uh, They need moisture available in the atmosphere, which is why they tend to form in in tropical uh, oceans uh, where it's it's quite warm and moist. Uh, And they they also need a a source of rotation because hurricanes are very tightly packed, uh, organized rotating clusters of thunderstorms. And these sources of rotation often come from waves in the atmosphere. Florida is now feeling the full force of Hurricane Irma. It's spent many days moving across the Caribbean. So forecasts of hurricane intensity uh, tend tend to be uh, quite reasonable these days, and often we can we can predict 
the intensity of a storm several days to to a week in advance of it of it making landfall. Uh, forecasts of the intensity of Hurricane Irma, for instance, were were highly accurate, and we knew uh, days in advance that this was going to be a very severe storm um, for the islands in in the Caribbean uh, and for the for the southeastern United States. So we use very high-resolution uh, weather forecasting models, which run on, on massive supercomputers with tens of thousands of processors, to forecast these storms and, indeed, uh, the weather worldwide. And those computer models uh, require observations uh, of, of the atmosphere all around the globe. And particularly for hurricanes, um, we, we get additional observations from reconnaissance aircraft, uh, which, which fly uh, out literally into, into the storms, um, dropping uh, probes uh, and taking in uh, measurements with instruments on board the aircraft to feed those data into our computer models to help us better predict uh, the track and the intensity of these storms. So these are manned aircraft that are literally flying into the storm. These are manned aircraft. Um, they're operated by uh, organizations like the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in the United States. Uh, and they, they do fly uh, right into the storm uh, of all intensity. So at the peak of Hurricane Irma, uh, when the winds were 170, 180 miles an hour, uh, you had reconnaissance aircraft uh, flying in there around the clock. Rising global temperatures means there's more energy and more water in the atmosphere. So considering the devastation Irma has caused for thousands of people, what will the hurricanes of the future be like? We do expect that with climate change, uh, hurricanes will become more intense. We don't necessarily expect that they'll become more frequent, uh, but we do expect uh, that, that they'll become a little bit stronger, um, particularly that we might see stronger winds, more intense precipitation uh, associated with hurricanes, and stronger storm surges um, because of sea level rise. And our thoughts, of course, are with those people who've been victims of those storms during this season. Nick Klingerman there from the University of Reading. He was speaking with Katie Haler. Next year marks 30 years since scientists first detected a planet outside our own solar system. These are called exoplanets, and since 1988, nearly 4,000 more have been confirmed. Now, astronomers are going a step further, and they can even uncover what chemicals are in the atmospheres around these remote worlds and work out what the conditions there must be like. Izzy Clark went to see Cambridge University space scientist Ryan MacDonald, who's been gazing at a planet over 800 light-years away called WASP-19b. Previously, they knew only that it was a gas giant, Jupiter-sized and sizzlingly hot. We didn't really know what to expect. We thought there might be hydrogen helium in the atmosphere. But what we were trying to do is to tease out the trace molecules, things that we might not even see on any of the planets in our own solar system. So firstly, we confirmed that there is water in the atmosphere. Now, this had previously been seen in 2013. But what made our measurements unique is that they were of such high resolution and so precise that we were able to actually go beyond just seeing the water and actually find small traces of sodium in the atmosphere. And crucially, for the first time, a definitive detection of a truly alien and strange molecule, titanium oxide. Why is that so rare? And does this tell us anything about this exoplanet? Yes, yeah, so the, the reason why this is particularly special is that titanium oxide is a very strong absorber of ultraviolet light, much like ozone in the atmosphere of the Earth. And so what this means is that the very upper layers of this planet's atmosphere will start to warm up due to the absorption of ultraviolet light. And as you might expect on the Earth, 
whenever a particular area of the atmosphere warms up, it can actually drive strong winds around our own planet. It's how things like hurricanes work on the Earth. So the fact that there is a layer of this strange molecule strongly absorbing ultraviolet light will drive strong winds around the planet that could dramatically alter the nature of the planet's atmosphere. How do you even go about finding this? Because obviously this exoplanet is not in our solar system. It's very far away. So how on earth can you do that? We use a clever technique called transmission spectroscopy. So what we do is we stare at the light from the parent star and we wait until the planet passes in front of it. It's almost like a shadow tracking across the face of the star. Now, when we observe this at a number of different colours of light, and in fact we looked in blue light, green light and red light, what you see is that the size of the planet changes depending on the colour you look at. Because if you look at a colour where the atmosphere is completely opaque, the shadow appears to be slightly larger. And then if you look in colours where the atmosphere is transparent, it's slightly smaller. So by turning a dial where we change the colour of the light we look at, and see how the size of the planet changes, we can use this to extract the chemical composition of the atmosphere. Now, what sort of device are you using? Have you got something out in space that is tracking this? You absolutely can use telescopes in space, but for these particular observations, we actually use a telescope on the ground, the very large telescopes down in Chile. And this is an incredibly exciting observational breakthrough, because the fact that telescopes on the ground are now catching up and perhaps even going beyond what we can do in space at the moment is incredibly promising for what we'll be able to do in the future with an entire new generation of telescopes that are being built right now. So do you think... In the future, we could actually look into even more greater detail of exoplanets and their atmospheres. Absolutely. At the moment, we're still in very early phases. We're just doing preliminary investigations of these atmospheres. In the near future, when we have a new generation of telescopes in space, such as the James Webb Space Telescope, and new telescopes on the ground, such as the extremely large telescope, that's when we'll be able to detect brand new molecules like oxygen and ozone for the first time. And it's detecting molecules like that in Earth-like atmospheres that we'll be able to do perhaps in the next five to ten years. That is what we will need to do if we really want to get a handle on whether there is life elsewhere in the universe, which is our long-term focus as a field. And the search for life in our universe continues. Fascinating stuff. That was Ryan MacDonald from Cambridge University, and his paper on that work was published this week in Nature. You're listening to The Naked Scientists. I'm Chris Smith, and in the next 20 minutes or so, we're taking a trip down memory lane to find out how our memories work, the drug that scientists have invented that can wipe out memories, and how researchers can even implant false memories of things you've never even done. But first, what do we actually mean by memory? Izzy Clark has been investigating, and she began by asking some people she bumped into on the street, we're like that, you see, to recollect their earliest memories. I remember dancing on my dad's feet while listening to old 60s music and singing at the top of our voice. It's a really hot day and the sun's streaming through and I'm checking on stones that we collected from the seaside and we painted images on them and faces. Probably the first memory I can remember very distinctly was playing in my parents' garden. That's Amy Milton. She's a psychologist at the University of Cambridge. 
And they used to have, I think it must have been a concrete fence post that I used to stand on to look over and chat to the kids in the neighbour's garden. And one day I, I fell off it and it fell back onto my foot and ended up giving me an enormous bruise. I can still remember that quite clearly. Recounting her first memory, Amy not only remembers the pain of the concrete block, but also the event itself. So do we have different types of memory? Well, we have short term, which is really short, like the ability to remember a phone number for just a few seconds while you need to dial it, and then poof, it's gone. But our long-term memory is a bit more complicated. There are two very broad types of of long-term memory that we have. So there's declarative memories. Um, These are memories that you can pass on in words, and that would include memories for events. So we refer to this as episodic memory because it's talking about episodes. But it would also include semantic memory, which is memory for facts. Episodic memory or event memory, is the ability to account things, like where you were when you passed your driving test, or the day you graduated. So we think about episodic memories as having sort of three components, a what, a where, and a when. And so all three of those in one memory would be considered an episodic memory. And then how does a semantic memory then differ from this? So a semantic memory is really the memory for what. So we tend to think of that as being sort of fact-based. And these memories aren't necessarily entirely distinct from each other. Memories can move from one type to another. So the kids have started back at school fairly recently. So they will be learning, for example, capitals of the world. So you may have a small child coming home fairly soon telling you that they know Paris is the capital of France and they could tell you who told them that information, where they were when they learned it. But actually, you know, we all learned that at school at some point, but we don't hold on to the where I learned it and who told me because it's no longer relevant. If you can describe it in words, then it's a declarative memory. Alongside those, we also have non-declarative memories, which it would include things like emotional memory. So memories that give rise to particularly emotional states and skill learning. So things like learning to ride a bike is clearly a memory, but they're called non-declarative because you can't pass those things on in words. So we've got different types of memory, but do we know where they're stored? We do know that different types of memory depend upon different parts of the brain. So that event memory refers on the parts of the brain that sit sort of right at the side by the ears. We call that the temporal lobe. And in particular, it depends on structures in the temporal lobe called the hippocampus. Um, We know skill learning, for example, depends upon areas within your motor system. So the little tiny bit at the back of the brain called the cerebellum, but also your motor cortex, for example, will show changes as you acquire a new skill. One of the most influential studies into this involved a patient called Henry Malayson, who was known as patient HM until he passed away in 2008. Henry suffered from severe epilepsy and no medication seemed to help. So in the 1950s, surgeon William Scoville removed the front part of Henry's hippocampus. This was really good from the perspective of the seizures. They reduced markedly, but Henry from that point onwards couldn't form any new event memories. So he had this very, very profound amnesia which gave a very, very strong steer to the hippocampus being important for those type of memories. 
But surprisingly, there was a breakthrough from a psychologist called Brenda Milner. What she managed to show was actually a lot of his memory was fine and skill learning was absolutely fine with Henry. So one of the tasks that she used was mirror drawing. So he had to trace around within a very sort of small outline to something like a star, but he could only see his hands in a mirror. He had a screen that stopped him from seeing his hands directly, which is quite tricky, but with practice you get much better at it. And so she found that you know, he improved with practice on a single day And then if she brought him back in the next day, he was better again. And if she brought him back in the next day, he was better again. Even though HM didn't remember doing this task, he was still able to learn a new skill, showing that any skill-based memory, like drawing, wasn't associated to the hippocampus. But when it comes down to it, where we actually store memories is an area that still has a few unknowns. Looking at HM's case, for example, so he had the surgery when he was in his late 20s. Events up to his early 20s, he could remember pretty well, actually, his teenage years, his childhood. Um, He could still draw the floor plan of his parents' house well into his 80s. From the moment of surgery, he had no memory. And actually, for a couple of years before that, his memories were starting to be much less reliable. So we know that very old memories don't require the hippocampus because otherwise HM wouldn't be able to remember them. We know that those memories go to the cortex. So the question then becomes, once they're in the cortex, are they really episodic memories still Or are they actually semantic memories that have become anecdotes about ourselves? So maybe I don't really remember falling off the concrete post and hurting my foot. I've just told that story so many times. That's now part of my history and that's now a fact about me and it's now a semantic memory. Amy Milson speaking with Izzy Clark. And actually my first memory, I reckon I was six months old. I can remember my own mum turning a cereal bowl upside down on my head because I was such a pain and I wouldn't eat properly and so she decided to teach me a lesson. Now as you mentioned uh, how we store memory is still a very hotly debated area and one researcher in New York believes that memories are stored in the connections or synapses which he likens to leaves of a tree touching between adjacent nerve cell trees and the strengths of those connections he thinks are controlled by a chemical called PKM zeta and this is made at each synapse when a new memory is first laid down. What Todd Saktor and his colleagues have done is to create a drug which is called ZIP, which disperses PKM Zeta, and it appears to be able to wipe out memories. So there are 86 billion nerve cells in the brain, and one could picture each nerve cell as a tree that has a thousand leaves, and each is connected to another leaf of another tree, another nerve cell. When two leaves are touching, one leaf releases a chemical, which we call a neurotransmitter. And then the adjacent leaf receiving that chemical starts to quiver. And we call this connection a synapse. A memory is formed when the leaf that is responding to the release of the chemical responds twice as much as it normally would. And that is due to a molecule called PKM-zeta. So when a memory is formed, the PKM-zeta molecule gets synthesized as the memory is being formed. The PKM-zeta then resides in that leaf, in the synapse. So is it fair to summarize then and say 
I learn something and I, I make those leaves which are connecting these trees fire off. And because they're touching, they fire off. They form this association, this connection, strengthened by this enzyme, PKM zeta, so that the way in which the information is stored is in the strength of those connections. And when I recall a memory, it's basically every tree that's connected in my mental forest is is shaking to recall that memory. It's created a sort of circuit, which is the memory of my, my holiday in Paris or the apple pie I had for dinner. If you recall the, the sight of an apple, then part of that network is starting to fire and then it reverberates throughout the whole network. And then the memory of having a particular dessert in Paris comes into your mind's eye. I can almost taste it now. So does that mean then that it's very difficult to unlearn something? Because once I've got those connections between my, my mental trees, how do I weaken it again if I then discover I was wrong and I shouldn't have learned that? I should have learned something different. Well, what's thought is that when the group of trees are all firing at the same time, that the synaptic connection, the PKM zeta, breaks down briefly and then gets resynthesized. So this is an opportunity at that time to change the memory, to add more information that was correct or to get rid of information that was wrong, to update the memory. And it's this resynthesis of the PKM zeta that we might be able to control with drugs to basically erase specific memories or to uh, alter them. Does this mean then that if you were to go into a part of the brain where a memory is stored and wipe away or break down the PKM zeta, which is there stabilizing that memory, you could wipe a memory out? Right, that this has been done in experimental animals. So a drug called ZIP has been given to experimental animals. And what we find is that all of the memories in that part of the brain are wiped out, even memories that are months old. But that drug doesn't seem to harm the brain because even though the memories are gone, once the drug is washed out, the animal could relearn and the learning is fine and the storage of the memory is fine. But you mentioned that when we do recall a memory or revisit a particular mental process, that the PKM zeta that's there strengthening that circuit and holding that memory does temporarily break down and then reform. So might there be a way, rather than just wiping it all out, to just prevent it reforming temporarily? Because that would mean you could discreetly wipe away the memories you were thinking about rather than every memory, which that could be pretty deleterious, couldn't it, to wipe away everything? That's right. I mean, there's ways to block specifically the synthesis of PKM Zeta. And that should be a powerful way of erasing a specific memory, basically having someone recall a memory and then give the drug that inhibits the synthesis and the PKM zeta will get broken down specifically at the leaves that are connecting up that specific memory, but then they won't get resynthesized again. So the memory will be dampened or erased but only in those leaves in which the PKM zeta had been degraded due to the activation, the quivering of those leaves. And what about elsewhere in the nervous system? Because the nervous system isn't just the brain. We've got a spinal cord as well. And people say that that does a lot of learning, particularly when you're little, to teach you to do motor things like walk around, but also pain. Is it possible that you could wipe out the pain memory 
and reprogram a person's spinal cord so something doesn't hurt anymore. Yes, I think that's actually where the uh, the clinical uh, use of a compound such as ZIP would be, because in experimental animals, chronic neuropathic pain is like a memory in the pain pathways of the spinal cord, and ZIP erases that. And are there any other applications, not in the spinal cord, but higher up the nervous system, where you could see erasing memories as being something clinically very beneficial and useful as a tool? Well, we don't want to erase all of our memories, all associations in our brain, or even in parts of the brain. So what's required, I think, is to develop the way to inhibit the action of PKM data for specific memories. So the idea would be to recall a memory that's uh, painful or extremely debilitating, like in post-traumatic stress disorder or depression, and then give a drug that will block the resynthesis of PKM data. And that should diminish or erase those specific maladaptive memories and keep the rest of our memories intact. It's exciting stuff, isn't it? That was Todd Saktor from the State University of New York. And of course, there are other views on how the memory system might be working too. Todd's aren't the only ones, but it is a very good place to start. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. Still to come, the effect of high-impact sports. How might heading footballs affect your memory? And also, how smart is the average pet dog? Before that, though, how would you feel if you sent an innocent person off to prison? Or what if you confessed to a crime, but you didn't actually do it? The way in which therapists or police question individuals can lead to the creation of what can be called false memories. And these can result in the wrong conviction from time to time. Izzy Clark spoke to crime psychologist Julia Shaw from University College London, who's all too familiar with similar situations. False memories are generally fabricated when we confuse something we just imagined with something that we actually experienced. So we think that we went to a party with a friend when really we we did go to the party maybe, but the friend wasn't there. So we've introduced a person into a setting that they weren't actually in or... In the stuff that I study, we maybe think we committed a crime that never happened. It's a process whereby the brain essentially gets confused and often takes pieces that exist of real memories. So what a real person looks like, what a real situation is like, what a real space is like, and just puts those pieces together in a way that never actually happened. Now, thinking that your friend was at a party with you when they weren't, compared to admitting or thinking that you did a crime are two different types of false memories, quite a big difference between them. Looking into your research, what did your recent study set out to find? In my study, I set out to show whether we can get people to falsely confess to crimes that never happened and actually internalize that false confession. So to think that they actually committed this crime, so an assault, an assault with a weapon, or a theft, all with police contact. So I didn't just want to do it for fun. I wanted to do it to show, look, this might actually be really easy to do in a relatively benign interview situation. If you've got someone on the stand and the evidence is poor and all you're relying on is their memory, you have to be careful. So talk me through that interview process. How did you actually have people believing that they committed a crime? I contacted their parents ahead of time. So these were university students, and they knew that I'd contacted their parents. And I asked the parents about events that happened when the participants were teenagers. And then I asked the participants to come in, 
They knew it was an emotional memory study, so they knew we'd be talking about early, earlier events and emotional events. And then we started, and, and we sat down, and I said, okay, so your parents reported this thing happening, and, and it was a real event. And so the participant would start saying, yeah, I okay, yeah, I remember that. And so we'd go through the what's called the cognitive interview, which is currently best practices for policing. And I'd, I'd go through, you know, tell me everything you can remember about the events from start to finish. And then probing questions. So you'd mentioned X, tell me more about that. Over 20 minutes, they'd build up the sense of, ooh, she knows something about my life. And we're getting somewhere. We're building rapport. I'm building trust. Is trust an important part of this? Trust is a huge part of this. If the person doesn't trust that you know more about their lives than they do, then it's not going to work. And then what did you do? Then I introduced a second memory, and this was the false memory. So I said, okay, when you were 14 years old, your parents said that you assaulted someone with a weapon, and the police called your parents, which is allegedly how they found out. Uh, you were with your best friend, and I inserted the name of the best friend, and you were in, and then I inserted the name of the hometown. So those two bits of reality added a lot of credibility as well. So the pieces about the location and the friend, true. True, true from that age. And these are easy things to picture. And so from that point on, what I got, had them do is, of course, they said, I don't know what you're talking about, which, which is understandable because it didn't happen. And then I said, well, you know, would, would you like to try the illusion of choice? Uh, would you like to try this uh, exercise, which works for most people if they try hard enough? And I walked into it. I said, okay, let's do this imagination exercise. Close your eyes and picture yourself at the age of 14. You're with your friend so-and-so. Where are you? What's, you know, where did this happen? And, and it, it's building up what did it feel like to be there? What, you know, what, why did you engage in this fight? What happened when the police came? And so building up these imagined pieces, but you can see they're starting to buy into it. Uh, and then after three weeks, the way that I classified the memory, 70% had full false memory. So they confessed to these crimes that never happened and told me why it happened and what happened and, and multisensory details. So can you give me an example, sort of what crimes are we talking about? The idea of a weapon sounds quite serious. So a weapon wasn't a semi-automatic rifle, it was a rock. And one girl was saying how she had a rock in her hand and she was attacking a, a love rival and she'd, she'd gone at her and thrown this really big rock and every time she was sitting there during these interviews that happened three times, the rock got bigger. And so she was reenacting in front of me this crime that never happened. It, it totally varied, but it had to fit within their life story. But this was for research and it was quite controlled by yourself. But say in an actual crime and in a court situation, that can have really big implications. In the real world, you can't undo that process. If you start asking leading or suggestive questions or you start doing imagination exercises where people confuse reality or experienced events with just imagined ones, it's hard to get rid of those. And they can be really compelling. And you can sit as a witness on, on the stand or you can be accused of a crime on the stand and you can be saying all these memory details of this thing that you think happened that, that is untrue. And you end up sending innocent people to, to, to jail. So what can we do to prevent that situation? 
what I want people to know is to know these things exist first and foremost. So know that a false memory is a thing that can happen. And in some ways, trust your own lack of memory. So as far as we know, there's no brain that is resistant to false memories. But also the justice system needs to know about it. So I train military and police, and I go and I educate them on the science of memory. And I say, you know, you guys really need to watch out with some of these interview tactics, especially, for example, in the, in the States, they use fake evidence. We found your fingerprints at the scene. That's incredibly compelling. It's about making sure that they're proactively working against the creation of false memories because once they're there, they can be impossible to undo. Pretty scary, isn't it? Julia Shaw from University College London speaking with Izzy Clark. According to the 2015 World Alzheimer's Report, 46 million people live with dementia worldwide and this is predicted to climb to 131 or so million by 2050. The 21st of September each year is World Alzheimer's Day and with us now is neuropathologist Steve Gentleman from Imperial College London. He works on this. Steve, if you look inside the brain of someone with Alzheimer's disease, what do you see? Well, I'm looking down the microscope. The uh, disease pathology spreads through the brain in a fairly predictable manner and the first place you'll see the pathology usually is around the hippocampus in the cortex next to the hippocampus. This is in the temporal lobe, in the, the temporal side part lobe. of the brain, isn't it? Where, where we think memory originates. That's right. So the first symptoms often of people with uh, Alzheimer's disease will be that loss of short-term memory. So they won't be able to lay down new memories. They'll be able to tell you what they were doing 20 years ago, but they won't be able to tell you where their house keys are. And what are the specific changes that you see in the brain tissue that tells you that's Alzheimer's disease? We stage the pathology by looking for abnormal proteins. And one of the particular abnormal proteins that's very maps very well with the progression of the disease is called tau. And it's a protein found in the nerve cells. And you can actually see spots of this cropping up in, in the brain? Yes. So it shouldn't be visible when we look down the microscope. But when it's laid down, it's aggregated, it's causing problems with the nerve cells, we can actually see it. And so that fits with the idea that you're losing nerve cells, and if you're losing nerve cells because of a build-up of, of this tau protein, then that would be consistent with why you might be losing your ability to form new memories, because you're compromising the cells that do that job. Yes, exactly. You're uh, interrupting that circuitry, which allows you to lay down new memories. Now, you've mentioned the protein tau, but there's another protein called beta amyloid, which is very often said that's the, the culprit or the cause of Alzheimer's disease. Why have you avoided telling me about that one? You're right. A-beta protein is a part of the diagnostic workup of Alzheimer's disease. But in general, the clinical picture, the symptoms, map much better to the tau pathology. Now, one of the things that's made headlines a lot lately is this question of whether or not sportsmen and women are at increased risk of damage to their nervous system when they indulge in sports that have an element of repetitive head injury, American footballers, soccer players who head balls, rugger players and so on. Is there evidence to support this? There's been a lot of interest over the last few years in this particular potential risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. As you say, the NFL in the US, the American football players, colleagues in Boston have described this new pathological entity called chronic traumatic encephalopathy. The pathology seen is thought to be related to that repetitive mild head injury. And interestingly, the pathology is the same protein that's found in Alzheimer's disease. It's a tau problem. What's different is it's localised to certain areas of the brain, 
probably related to the head injury. So, as you'll know, the surface of the brain has got lots of convolutions, and at the basis of the troughs, that's where the pathology is found. And our engineer colleagues have been mo uh, modelling this, and lo and behold, this is where the forces are of a head injury are focused. So that's a good building evidence that this might be cause and effect. However, there's also a lot of other things going on in the brains of these people. So at the moment, we can't be absolutely certain about cause and effect. There are other disease processes going on, other degenerative diseases. So we need a little bit more work to be able to relate what we see down the microscope to the symptoms seen in these patients during their lives. So marrying these two entities together, Alzheimer's disease and then the repetitive head injury, they both produce evidence of damage having occurred to the brain. In one case, it's a sort of physical injury. In the other, something else is causing damage to the brain which manifests as a build-up of this tau protein and possibly the beta amyloid protein we mentioned. In both cases, though, there is damage to nerve cells and loss of nerve cells, which is going to ultimately affect the way your brain works. That's correct, yes. The, both of them will involve nerve cell loss, shrinkage of the brain called atrophy, uh, which has been put down to that nerve cell loss. What about doing something about it because obviously there may be people now who are quite worried professional footballers people like Wayne Rooney who's just finished his uh, professional career in more ways than one possibly um, who are now quite worried because they've spent a lifetime heading balls what, what can they do it's difficult to say we to be perfectly honest we don't know what the risk is what's the relative risk of a head trauma in terms of your life risk of getting dementia there are well-known risk factors mainly related to your vascular health. So um, your brain weighs about one and a half kilos. It's quite a small proportion of your body weight, but the brain takes a fifth of all the blood coming from the heart. So it's very demanding. So you need to keep your blood vessels healthy. So the motto of that there must be healthy diet, don't smoke, exercise? Exactly. So regular exercise is where we're at then. Thank you very much, Steve, gentlemen. And thank you also to our other guests this week, John Zarnecki, Amy Milton, Todd Saktor and Julia Shaw. Well, now it's time for our question of the week. And Stevie Bain has a rough answer to this poochie pondering that's coming from David. Science has attempted to try and measure the intelligence of other primates, dolphins, birds and many other species of animals. My question is... How does your average ordinary pet dog measure up in comparison? We asked Ben Ambridge from the University of Liverpool, an author of Are You Smarter Than a Chimpanzee, what he thought. It's not that difficult to come up with a test that you can give in more or less the same form to a handful of different species. So there are plenty of studies comparing humans to chimpanzees, to pigeons, to squirrels and so on. But it's impossible to come up with a test that will work across all species, firstly for boring practical reasons. So, you know, you can't get a fish, for example, to swim out of the tank and press a lever. Um, but more fundamentally, because it's not clear if intelligence even means the same thing across different species. Yes, I can imagine a game of chess between a squirrel and a sheep may not be very informative. So instead, what scientists generally do is to try to infer intelligence based on brain size or brain weight. And about the best measure that we've come up with is something called the encephalization quotient, which essentially measures whether the brain size is bigger and heavier than you'd expect given the overall size of the species. And this doesn't work perfectly, but it gives pretty much the results you'd expect. So humans come top of the table with a score of seven. Dolphins are second with about five. Chimpanzees are just over two. Monkeys and whales are just under two. 
And on this measure, dogs are actually pretty mid-table. They score about 1.2. So to put that in context, they're just above cats, horses and sheep, for example, who score one or just under, but they're just below foxes and elephants. Hmm. So not a particularly impressive score for man's best friend. In fact, our domesticated pitches even score lower than their wild relatives, the wolves. <laughs> so dogs in general might not be anything particularly special, but that's not to say that dogs in particular can't do some pretty impressive stuff. So for example, in my book, I talk about a, a border collie called Chaser who managed to learn over a thousand different words, albeit with some pretty extensive training. Um, in particular, those breeds that have been bred specifically for intelligence can be pretty smart. So it turns out you may be able to teach an old dog new tricks, but if you think that Fido has a high IQ, you're barking up the wrong tree. Thanks, Ben, for putting that one to rest. Next week, we're cooking up an answer to this question from Zeti. When you cook food with wine, brandy, or indeed any alcohol, how much, if any, percentage of the alcohol stays behind? Also, what would its effect be on an alcoholic? Now that's food for thought, isn't it? And if you think you know the answer, or if you have a question that you'd like us to look into for you, then you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists, or you can join in the debate on the forum. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. And that is it for this week. Thank you very much to Izzy Clark for putting the programme together, and do join us next time when replacement retinas, head transplants, and an artificial pancreas for better diabetes treatment will all be on the air because we're going bionic. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith and from us here at The Naked Scientist, thanks to you for listening and until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.